everyone, welcome to the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Jessica Chiam, founder and managing director of Eco Business, and I'm excited to welcome our guest today, Shinbo Wan, director of BlackRock's investment stewardship in Singapore. Shinbo is responsible for engaging with investing companies in the Greater China, South Korea, and Southeast Asian markets on behalf of BlackRock's clients globally. BlackRock has in recent years made sustainable investing its central philosophy and has been pushing for higher standards in ESG, that is environment, social and governance performance. But there remains many challenges in mainstreaming where ESG is concerned. So we look forward to hearing his views. Shimbo, thanks so much for joining us here this morning. Thank you very much for having me. I'd like to dive right into it. To start us off, can you share with us the thinking behind BlackRock's strategy and what is your mandate here exactly in Asia? Sure. Um, so I'm part of the investment stewardship for BlackRock. And what we do in our team, our main function basically is to vote on all the shares that we hold across our uh, different portfolios globally, and also to engage with the companies on issues that we believe are material to long-term uh, shareholder value and also the value of the companies. And Increasingly, we have been uh, discussing and having dialogues with companies. Perhaps we should take a few steps back. Um, the investment stewardship team has been in place for a long time, and we've been having ongoing engagement with companies and their leadership. And we do this to promote sound corporate governance and business practices that align with creating sustainable long-term value, and which includes dialogues and issues such as climate or ESG topics that have direct implications to long-term company value. Like I just shared, this is the main part of our role. And you should be familiar with this. Um, You're one of the first people in Singapore, I believe, who reported on it. But you recall that in January, BlackRock made a very strong commitment to our clients that we will put sustainability at the heart of how we invest, manage risk, and discharge our stewardship responsibilities in respect to the companies we are shareholders of on behalf of our clients. So one of the key messages in that letter was our conviction that climate risk is investment risk and that we will be actively managing that risk within our investments by increasing our engagement efforts with companies on sustainability issues and asking for strong disclosure uh, aligned to TCFD and SASB. So the report that you're referring to was published in September this year. It was really born from our effort to increase the transparency on how we have been working towards these commitments and to show BlackRock and the team in action, disclosing how we exercise our fiduciary duty through engagement and voting. So the companies you mentioned are those we have identified through these engagements where we strongly believe more needs to be done to properly manage the environmental risk that the businesses face to be a viable long-term success. Uh, We have already taken voting action at some, holding the board accountable for the shortfall despite our engagement efforts. And we will be stepping up uh, our engagements with the rest to hopefully see them meet our expectations. This is really wonderful to hear. Um, you know, in terms of the global trends you're seeing on ESG performance, what would you say, where would you say is Asia? I mean, to what extent are Asian companies leading or lagging? Mm. Okay, I think ESG investing or sustainable investing was once viewed as a, as a trade-off between value and values. 
a perception that you need to sacrifice performance to be a sustainable investor. But I, we had a report that was out, I believe, two years ago. We released a report using back-tested data that showed how ESG-focused indices have matched or outperformed their uh, traditional counterparts with comparable volatility. And this really highlights that good ESG metrics have very much in common with existing management quality metrics like strong balance sheet that suggests that ESG-friendly portfolios could be more resilient in, in economic downturns. And I'm sure you're very familiar with this, but that is certainly what we have seen early this year. Um, during the, uh, the market volatility that was triggered by the early stages of COVID pandemic this year, we have seen both strong performance in, in the sustainability funds that are already in the market. And we have also seen very, very strong fund flows um, uh, you know, towards sustainable investments that during that period, and it continues uh, to, to this day. And so now if we look at Asia, and as anybody who knows Asia, uh, it is not a homogeneous block. There are differences in the level of awareness, uh, especially among corporates, that investors are looking at this closely, given this trend that we just talked about. Uh, the regulatory development phases are, are very different. But having said that, we are seeing very strong steps being taken uh, in the more advanced Asian markets to really uh, develop this space. So Singapore is a great example. There is strong motivation to become the regional hub in sustainable finance. And the regulators here are working towards developing guidelines to promote this industry. And recently, we have also seen three of the largest uh, country or markets in Asia come out with their net zero targets, which will have very meaningful impact to how companies, you know, basically adapt their businesses to to meet that target of reducing carbon and greenhouse gas emission. And lastly, um, you know, looking through our most recent client surveys, there's also a very strong interest among even Asian investors towards sustainable investing. So, you know, if you take all of these signs together, it seems that at least in the bigger pockets of Asia, we are ready to see ESG go mainstream like we have seen in the more um, developed markets. This is really wonderful. I think we can see also with the Asian governments, you know, making climate change commitments. Uh, we had China, Japan and South Korea very recently making these commitments. And so, yeah, it's very hopeful. It looks like ESG is finally becoming mainstream. Um, just going into a little bit with your engagement in investing companies in this region um, and your interaction with boards, because we have a lot of board members who work um, we have a lot of board members, uh, you know, who are our readers here in Asia. What has your interaction, uh, you know, with them been? And, and what is their thinking behind ESG? You know, you mentioned a little bit about how uh, it was considered a trade-off before. Are they seeing it now as a strategic competitive advantage? Uh, that's a good question. But before that, I'd like to spend a few seconds just trying to clarify what engagement is for us. Um, I think there is a common misconception out there that BlackRock through engagement basically tells boards what they should be doing. <laughs> and that is definitely not the case. And uh, our CEO, Larry Fink, says this quite frequently, that we are not, we are not okay. investing our own money. This is our client's money. Mm. And we are long-term shareholders in these companies on behalf of those clients. Mm -hmm. 
So it is our responsibility to engage with the boards and the management to understand how they are managing the companies. What are the challenges? What are the steps that are being taken to overcome them? How they are managing the risks, including ESG-related risk, to serve the long-term interest of shareholders and other stakeholders. So with that context, if we take a look at how Asian boards are responding to ESG, you know, the, the first answer that comes to mind that is that it's a very wide spectrum, even within any given market. But generally, we see a, a much increased awareness of the importance of ESG and reporting on how they are managing those issues. And this is a direct results of investors basically asking for it for a long time. Regulators, exchanges, they're encouraging it and both as rules or by way of, uh, you know, the corporate governance codes and so forth. And we do see signs in many companies in Asia where they are now taking a deeper dive uh, into this in terms of identifying the key risks, the key stakeholders they need to manage and really integrating these things into the company's longer term strategy. And this is definitely what we would like to see more of. And I think an interesting observation is that we see a very strong correlation between the board's willingness to engage directly with us and other investors and the quality of the reporting that we see from the companies. So I, I think that's evidence enough for us to really continue to work towards increasing more direct dialogues with, with the boards in the markets to, that I cover. That's really great to hear. And let's talk about reporting and disclosure for a minute, because you very rightly pointed out that there is a lot of investor pressure on companies to disclose. But then on this topic alone, you know, um, the World Economic Forum, you know, earlier this year issued a new set of metrics on a state, stakeholder capitalism, as they call it. And we already have GRI, SASB, TCFD, science-based <laughs> targets. And the consultants are, you know, so upset that they have to report on so many standards. I mean, do you see a convergence? I know that BlackRock had recently issued a call for a single global framework. Do you think we'll be seeing that anytime soon? Um, you know, as a consumer of sustainably reports, I mean, we read through hundreds of them um, every year. Actually, I would say thousands, even just within our Asia team. I, I totally agree. The convergence is both welcome and necessary. Um, and fortunately, we are seeing a strong trend toward that. Um, so I'm not sure if I should be using acronyms, but let me try to avoid that. So the Carbon <laughs> Disclosure Project, CDP, um, Climate Disclosure Standards Board, CDSB, uh, Global Reporting of GRI, the IIRC, the International Integrated Reporting Council, and finally, SASB, so Standard, a Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. You know, the five largest standard setters in this space, they came out a few months ago saying that they will be working towards addressing this specific pain point that's felt by both investors and companies, and, and really work towards a more comprehensive reporting standard. And um, it was just this week, right? We, we heard that the IIRC and SASB will be merging into one organization. So we are definitely seeing changes already. That's really wonderful to hear. And I think that uh, the consultants will be very relieved if we have finally uh, see one common common standard. Um, just thinking about um, disclosure, we actually see now that a lot of issuers and listed companies are disclosing because they are mandated to. But there is a huge swathe of private companies who are equally 
influential and have large footprints and SMEs as well who are not disclosing. Um, and in your portfolio, I'm sure you have non-listed companies as well. I mean, do you think that there is a role for, say, governments to play or maybe even the UN to actually say, hey, you know, even if you're not listed, you should be thinking about these issues. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, that's a tough question. So fortunately, I my mandate is really on public equities. So these are publicly listed companies. They're more aware of the demands and uh, also probably have more resources to undertake these reporting. I completely agree that this could be a challenge for many of the SMEs. And fortunately, um, I, I think there is a growing consensus among the financial institutions, at least, that, okay, we need that information because specifically if we look at banks, a lot of them service SMEs, and this is from their own end. They need to report on, on these risks posed by their, their smaller client base. So I think there is a growing consensus among banks, among financial institutions, that maybe there is a way for us to step up and help them. And, um, you know, to your point, I, I agree. I think um, to really facilitate a more meaningful reporting by the smaller players in the market, I think there should be help from, you know, the larger uh, organizations, um, their financiers like the banks, as well as governments. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's talk a little bit about COVID-19, because obviously this has been the largest crisis that uh, humanity has seen in recent times. And JP Morgan re- recently issued a statement saying that you know, COVID-19 has been the turning point for ESG investing. Do you agree? And how do you think COVID-19 has impacted ESG disclosure as well as performance? Um, Disclosure, I think this is a, it's an ongoing progress. It's a challenge. There's a lot of prodding and and encouragement that's required for companies to really um, step up. And there definitely is a role for investors to play in this space. Um, I think when we were talking about sustainably reporting and ESG as a topic in general, I think um, the E part really has been gaining a lot of traction over the last few years. I think what COVID has done has brought focus on the other two components as well. So if we look at the report that we were talking about earlier on in the talk um, that basically highlights which were the topics, which were the companies that we engaged with, you would, could see that uh, you know our primary focus really was on climate. So you've seen engagement numbers almost triple compared to last year. But at the same time, you would also see that uh, we have significantly increased the number of engagements on the social aspects as well, uh, about 150% growth compared to the end of last year. And I, I think you know, COVID really brought this to the front. Uh, we wanted to understand how companies and companies had a lot of difficult choices to make in response to the pandemic. We really wanted to understand how they weighed their decisions in terms of balancing the interests of their employees, customers, suppliers, and the wider community. And, you know, this is not the end of the story. This is still ongoing. I mean, we do see some positive sign in terms of the, uh, you know, vaccines coming out and so forth. But uh, the need to understand how companies and their societal impact and their commitment to their, their stakeholders, it remains very high for us. So it's definitely going to be an ongoing focus for us. 
I think it's really encouraging because, I mean, from the media perspective, when COVID-19 first uh, hit the world, you know, we were all afraid that uh, companies would just all kind of, you know, go into survival mode, right? And then mm. ESG and sustainability would become an afterthought. But I think what's been interesting is that link between um, ESG as well as human and planetary health for companies has become a lot more pronounced. Uh, and so we, we've seen so many net zero targets that we would never have imagined before. Tech companies, Google, Facebook, um, and even energy giants such as uh, Shell, BP, and even very recently in Asia, Patronus, saying they're going to be net zero by 2050. And there's now this large debate about whether this is greenwashing or whether it's really something that's practical and realistic. What are your views on this? No, I, I, first, I agree with your point that, you know, the, the level of awareness and I guess the sensitivity um, that was really heightened due to COVID. Um, you know, COVID was, was a challenge that was posed by really nature. It was global in scale and, and it requires global effort to really address. And I think that fact really sensitized a lot of business leaders, also investors, that there are similarities here with, with, with climate risk that we have been talking about for so many years. So in that respect, I think the level of awareness on, on ESG as a whole has really um, increased. Uh, in terms of the willingness to align capital to stronger ESG, including companies that are more resilient because they do have better practices and policies in place to address the, the S or the social uh, aspect of their risk management plans. I think, you know, we've seen that purely from uh, both the performance of the sustainability funds as well as the fund flows that we have seen into sustainability funds. So, yeah. That's wonderful. Um, Shimbo, I'm going to go into a little bit more of a personal realm because, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of our listeners are also ESG practitioners. What would you say it has been your biggest challenge as somebody pushing for stewardship and ESG in, in your profession? That's a good question. Um, Sorry so, to put you yeah. on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, you know, we have asked companies this year to strengthen their sustainability disclosure, really aligning to TCFT and SASB standards. It is not a small ask. We know that um, sustainable reporting requires a lot of look inward. They need to understand. They need to measure, um, you know, many of the things maybe that they have never been measuring. So this is a journey. We understand it takes time. It takes resources. And it is a commitment, really, given the challenges that they're already facing with the, the COVID pandemic. But I, I would like to stress that, though, uh, that investors globally are really increasingly looking for evidence that companies and boards are actively managing ESG-related risks as well as the opportunities. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and COVID does not change that fact. It is perhaps even more important to understand which are the companies that are managing this well. And you know, we, we would really like to see companies focus on disclosing what are the material issues to our company specifically how are we embedding this into our strategy? What are the kind of risk management processes we need to put in place or have put into place? And really what are meaningful targets for us within that context? And 
you know, there, uh, you know, to repeat what I said earlier, there is a very strong appetite from the investors to align capital to strong ESG performance. So this is an opportunity for companies as well. I really stress this point with companies when I engage with them. I hope the listeners um, would take this as the key takeaway that, you know, it is tough task. It is a journey. It's going to be a lot of commitment to strengthen disclosure, but this is also an opportunity because there's a lot of investors really looking to make that investment towards companies that are doing a good job on this. That's really well put, Shimbo. And I think that, you know, uh, BlackRock being the world's largest asset manager to see that kind of effort and engagement is really encouraging. Um, but just to put you a little bit on the spot again, um, <laughs> you know, because BlackRock means so many things to different people, right? And, you know, recently it was in the news because it won this sustainable finance contract with the EU um, and some environment groups and civic society groups got upset because, uh, you know, it points out that BlackRock still, I mean, you know, it has made a lot of uh, improvements on ESG and disclosure, um, but it's still kind of the largest manager of shares in fossil fuel companies, as well as a major investor in the world's banks. So, you know, there are so many optics to manage. How, how, do, you, how, how do you respond to this? Um, going back to January letter, um, as part of our commitment towards climate and the need to manage climate related risks, we have um, you know, communicated that we will be actively managing that risk in our active portfolios where we actually have the option to you know, increase or reduce our position in certain, certain high risk um, names. And as a result of that, we have identified thermal coal as one of the most pressing climate risk uh, sectors. And we have been divesting from companies where more than 25% of their revenues are being generated from thermal coal from our active portfolios. On the passive side or or the indexed uh, side, maybe if that's the more common term um, audience would be familiar with, Unfortunately, that option isn't there. But nonetheless, we are actively managing the ESG risk within that portion of our portfolio too. And our team has a very, very strong role to play in that. And that is the driver and that is the motivation behind the increased engagements efforts that we have been doing with companies, the transparency in terms of how we have voted to both signal concern, but also to hopefully promote change. And this is going to be a, a long journey for us as well. Um, there's going to be a lot more um, effort that we have to put in into that space. But, you know, looking at uh, the number of increased uh, TCFD SASB reporters among the companies that we have actually engaged with, we're hopeful and we're encouraged that uh, more companies are listening to us. And, um, you know, we will continue to promote our own transparency in terms of how we have uh, exercised our own fiduciary duties um, in terms of managing that risk and uh, performing our duties when it comes to voting and engagement. 
to to further promote that. That's great. I'm so glad to hear that you're optimistic because yesterday I was just reading this news about some Norwegian scientists saying that even if we stopped all activities, that global heating is going to go on to 2500 unless we remove 30 billion tons of carbon. So I was really depressed after hearing that. What, what keeps you inspired and motivated in, in this job? I mean, sometimes it, the news can seem quite depressing. It is. It is also a deep concern. Um, but I think the, the recent announcement made by China, Korea, Japan, uh, really putting a net zero target, which is a big beacon of signal for companies to take action. Um, I think with that strong you know, government level leadership, more investor engagements with the companies they're invested in, and the society itself is changing and the investor base itself is also changing. Uh, you know, we've also released a research report a few years ago saying that there is a massive amount of capital that is being poised to be uh, inherited down to the younger generation, the millennials, and the way they would invest and what they would um, require from their investee companies would be very different. And so I think there are positive forces that will drive the change that is required. We certainly are committed to play our part in that transition. Wonderful. On that positive note, I think perhaps to wrap up this discussion, I'm just going to ask you uh, one last question. And that is, you know, that 2020 has been such a life changing, in some ways, horrible year for people, but in some way inspiring. So what is your biggest hope for 2021 as we go into the new year? I think one of the challenges personally uh, in terms of my role was that all of the engagements have been virtual. Even our discussion right now, Jessica, is virtual. And I think we're getting very used to this, but at the same time, I, I do miss that, um, that, that human interaction that I've had with many of the board members in some of the larger companies that we invest in. I definitely hope that uh, things do come back to normal, that, um, vaccines will be developed, COVID will be under control, and we can go back to, um, I guess, the deeper dialogues that we've uh, managed to have in, in previous years. Wonderful. And with that lovely sentiment, I think we'll wrap up this podcast. Thank you, Shinbo, for a most insightful discussion. I hope our, lead our listeners have both gained insights as well as inspirations from this. That's all for now, folks. Stay tuned for our next podcast. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you.